Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Years ago, there was a fellow named Art Linkletter that was famous for interviewing children. In his book, Kids Say the Darndest Things, he says, and I quote, Children under 10 and women over 70 give the best interviews. For the identical reasons, they speak the plain, unvarnished truth. They dish it out in no uncertain terms, with heartfelt emotion coloring every phrase. No concealment, flattering, hypocritical editorializing. If you don't want the truth, you better not ask them. He interviewed some 15,000 youngsters. Here's a sample. He said to one young man, what is your father's profession? And the little fellow said, my dad's a cop who arrests burglars, robbers, and thieves. Linkletter said to him, does your mother worry about such a risky job? He answered, nah, she thinks it's a great job. He brings home rings, bracelets, and jewelries almost every week. He asked another little kid, what does your mom do? She answered, she's a Sunday school teacher. Uh, Then Linkletter said, well, what does she do for fun? And she answered, she plays poker and drinks beer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... Those who are supposed to do what is right don't always do what is right, not even leaders. Now, for some reason, I think we are fascinated by bizarre behavior, or maybe I should say this kind of behavior, so that if there's a documentary on a serial killer, we're interested. I know I am. I want to know what makes them do that kind of thing. Well, we've been going through the little book of 2 Peter, and in chapter 2, he introduces false teachers. And I have the same reaction to them that I have toward other people who are doing things out of character. So I want to ask, what makes a false teacher tick? Well, in 2 Peter, he gives us what I'm calling the anatomy of a false teacher. And it is really fascinating, not only because what we can learn about them, but maybe because of some things we can learn about ourselves. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to cut in in the middle of the passage. Now, last week, we looked at verses 1 to 10. Uh, 1 to 9, I should say. Now we're going to pick up at verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. 
They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring railing accusations against them because of the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deception while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and cannot cease from sin enticing stable, unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, Retaining the madness, restraining the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried away by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, this part of the chapter is given over to describing the inner workings of a false teacher. I'm not sure that all false teachers fall into this category, but some do. Now, normally, I think you determine a false teacher by his false teaching. In this case, Peter is going a little deeper and talking about a certain kind of false teacher. And he's analyzing what these particular false teachers do. He basically, in this passage, gives two characteristics, and then he ends with another observation. So what I want us to primarily do is look at these two characteristics. I'll go back to verse 10. He says, especially those who walk according to the lust, the, uh, according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Now there are the two characteristics. They are spelled out in verse 10. First of all, they are dominated by their sinful flesh. And secondly, they despise authority. Now he mentions those two in verse 10, but he then expands on them in reverse order. In other words, he starts with the fact that they have been uh, dominated by their sinful flesh, and then, uh, I'm sorry, he starts with they despise authority, and then he talks about they are dominated by their spiritual flesh. So, let's start with the fact that they, dom they, are, they despise authority. He picks this up in the latter part of verse 10. He says they are presumptuous, self-willed, and are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, all these words are describing their, their attitude, and it is they despise authority. 
the word presumptuous means that they are bold and daring. It denotes reckless daring that defies God as well as man. The little word self-willed means that they are arrogant and they are self-pleasing. One author says it is used of the obstinate fellow who is determined to please himself at all costs. Another said it was reckless, being shameless and headstrong. Another said that if this person is self-willed, neither logic, nor common sense, nor appeal, nor a sense of decency will keep him from doing what he wants to do and what he decides to do. He is stubbornly and arrogantly and even brutally determined to go his own way, regardless of what humans appeal to him or even divine guidance. You ever known anybody like that? So headstrong, they are bent on doing what they want to do, and no logic, no appeal of any kind can reach them. Well, that is the way he is describing these false teachers. An authority on Greek words says that the self-willed people are those who please themselves and so please themselves that nothing pleases them. They are so overvaluing, uh, they are so overvaluing any determination at which they have arrived that they will not be moved from it. They are stubborn. They are obstinate. They obstinately maintain their opinion and assert their rights and are reckless with the rights, feelings, and interests of others. Wow. There are, these false teachers are filled with what I think could be called arrogant pride, expressing itself, according to Peter, in railing against dignitaries. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're not exactly sure. Some say it's railing against church leaders. Others say it's railing against angels. And that view is supported by the fact that in the very next verse, that's what he discusses. Verse 11 says, Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a railing accusation against them before the Lord. Uh, commentators who read this verse scratch their head. One of them called it exceedingly difficult because we don't have any background as to what's going on. This much is clear. Peter is contrasting the headstrong false teachers with angels. And his point is simply that the angels uh, who are greater than the false teachers in power do not bring uh, accusations against dignitaries. But these false teachers are so arrogant, they are so filled with pride that that's what they do. So, he says in verse 12, in contrast to the angels, these are like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, but they speak evil things of those that they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Wow. This is, this is an illustration of their attitude. But um, I think it's particularly interesting. He calls them beast. And that word means without reason. 
irrational. That these people are like irrational creatures who follow the desires of their passions and not reason. Now, I can go on and on uh, talking about the fact that these people are basically rebellious. That's what this comes down to. And there was a comedian some time ago who said, "All he's being funny, he's trying to be funny, all I ask is a constant and exaggeration sense of my own importance. That's what these people are like. There was an actor once who said, whenever I stay in a hotel, I always check to see if they have a Gideon Bible. And if they do, I tear out a page. They, it says, I, tear, I turn to Leviticus 18.22 and rip it out. I think uh, by now I must have ripped out a hundred pages. Who knows? There might be someone who with insomnia might read the Bible because they have nothing else to do and might be especially vulnerable to what I really think is Leviticus's pornography. That verse is against homosexuality, and the guy that ripped out the page was a homosexual. But that's the attitude, isn't it? I'm not going to submit to any authority, not even God. I'll rip out a page of the Bible before I would do that. So, the first characteristic of false teachers, particularly the ones he has in mind, is that they despise authority. They are in rebellion against God. That is the first characteristic of a false teacher. It gets worse. The second characteristic is they, dis they are dominated by fleshly desires. Pick it up at verse 13. They receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deception while they feast with you. This is an incredible verse. First of all, it says they receive the wages of unrighteousness. They're going to pay uh, in due time for their unrighteousness. But the real idea here is they count it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. In other words, they are dominated by their passions. They carouse in the daytime. In the ancient world, you caroused at night. To do it in the daytime was excess upon excess. As a matter of fact, if you'll remember in, um, Rome, in Acts chapter 2, uh, when they received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, uh, they said, they're drunk. And Peter's defense was, no, 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 we're not drunk, it's still day. Remember that? Because in the ancient world, you did the carousing at night. So to say they were carousing in the daytime is quite the indictment. But what is really fascinating about that verse is he says that they were spots on your feast. They were meeting with you. 
Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, I want you to look at this very carefully. He says, they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own destruction while they feast with you. You see that at the end of verse 13? That same expression is used in the book of Jude of what is called there the love feast. And the love feast was the fact that the ancient church met together for lunch. They had a potluck. They ate together. So the love feast was that meal that included the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, according to the book of Acts, that's the reason they met. Acts chapter 20, I think it's verse 7, says they came together to, to just do that. And then Paul happened to be there, so they let him preach. But they gathered for the Lord's table, and they did it every Sunday. Now the shocking thing in this chapter is that these false teachers were in the church. They were in the church at the Lord's table. And because they were there, Peter says, there are spots, there are stain on your assembly because of who they are. So their fleshly desire is called their own deception. They are personally deceived by their sin. They think that they're going to get away with what they are doing. Now think about this. I'm going to describe some pretty horrible stuff in a minute. And just know, they are teachers, let that sink in, in a church that's observing the Lord's table. This is pretty graphic stuff. I think one of the lessons we can learn here is that sin is subject to the law of diminishing returns. Periodic drunkenness at night ceases to satisfy. It's expanded to the daytime. Then daylight drunkenness is not enough. It's extended all the way to the love feast. So the pleasure of sin is just for a season. So when it loses its pleasure, we have to go for more. And isn't that what happens with the drug addict? They start and they have to have more and more. So Peter says they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. That their unrighteousness is like working at a job and they will eventually get paid. Furthermore, living according to the flesh is self-destructive. It's suicidal. Boy, isn't that true? Sin is suicidal. Anger produces negative effects on the body. Drunkenness destroys the body. You ever heard of cirrhosis of the liver? Self-indulgence sabotages a reputation. It is self-destructive. Now, we're, we're talking now about this second characteristic, this indulgence of the flesh. And now he's going to get a little specific. Look at verse 14. He says, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. 
All right. He has alluded to the fact that they are dominated by the flesh. They count it a pleasure to carouse. But now he's going to get very specific. The real issue in their case is adultery. And so he says, they have eyes full of it. That's bad. They cannot cease from it. That's worse. And in the process, they beguile uh, unstable souls. In other words, they seduce women. So, they are dominated by this sin and they cannot cease from it. And so they beguile. Uh, that word means bait. They go out and bait unstable souls, which here is talking about, obviously, other women. So he says in the latter part of verse 14, they have a heart trained in covetousness practices and are accursed children. The word trained, by the way, is the Greek word from which we get the English word gymnasium. So you go to the gym to train your body. Uh, they were trained in covetousness and particularly the lust of the flesh in terms of sex. So, Peter says in verse 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Borah, Beor, I should say, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. There's that word again. Now, the way of uh, Unrighteousness was a common metaphor in the Old Testament for uh, disobedience to God. Doing the right thing was obedience to God. Doing the wrong thing was unrighteousness. So these false teachers have forsaken the obedience to God. Now, he uses Balaam as an illustration. If you know anything about the Old Testament, uh, you know a little bit about this. Balaam was an unrighteous covetous, greedy man. So when the children of Israel camped in the plain of Moab, Balak, the king of Moab, became deeply concerned. So he sent for Balaam and he said, I want you to curse uh, the children of Israel. Balaam asked the Lord what he should do and, Balaam, and the Lord told him not to go back in to Balaam and not to curse the Israelites. But guess what he did? Uh, when he uh, decided to go, uh, he's being unrighteous. So verse 16 says, but he was rebuked for his iniquity by a dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restraining the madness of the prophet. So he was bent on doing his will in violation of the clear word of God. And so the Lord put a donkey in his pass. Remember that story? God sometimes speaks through donkeys <clears throat> in more ways than one. So it was the fact that God tried to stop him, but he was bent on doing it his way. He is rebellious. All right. So far I've said two things. I've said... Um, he despised authority, and he was dominated by the flesh. That's the characteristic of these false teachers Peter has in mind. 
I don't think all false teachers fall in that category, at least in the second characteristic. I think all false teachers are in rebellion against God. I'm not sure they all go as far as Peter describes here. But some do. So let me give you a modern illustration or two. The first, he was an ordained minister, ordained by the independent assemblies of God, and later by the disciples of Christ. He founded a church in Indiana, which he moved to California, and from California to South America. Legally, he had one wife. But a few years later, after his second ordination, uh, he had his first affair, then multiple affairs. While he banded extramarital affairs among all the church members, he himself was having extramarital affairs. His name, and some of you have guessed it by now, was Jim Jones, the founder of the People's Temple. Jones subsequently committed a mass murder-suicide of 918 followers, 304 of which were children who drank the Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. That's one illustration. Another, David Koresh, was the leader of a religious group that grew out of the Seventh-day Adventist church. He founded the Branch Davidians and proclaimed himself to be the final prophet. He had one legal wife, Rachel, who was 14 years old at the time of their wedding. But he asked his followers to embrace celibacy, nullifying their marriages, and then taking their wives for himself, including Rachel's 12-year-old sister, Michelle. The Branch Davidians were told that if he had sex with a woman, she was of the house of David. He admitted to having 12 children by different wives, although sources say he fathered 15 or more. In 1993, there was a raid by federal officials. Four ATF agents were killed and another 16 were wounded. That led to a 15-day standoff. And in the end, fire broke out. And when it did, only nine of the Branch Davidians escaped the fire while 75 bodies were found in the burned ashes of their building. That's horrible. That is horrible. That's two illustrations. Unfortunately, they are more. But here's what Peter wants us to know. A lot of details in this passage. It boils down to two things. False teachers despise authority. And false teachers are dominated by their flesh, not by reason or the word of God. That's what you need to know. But Peter ends this passage with a very fascinating comment. Look at verse 17. He said, These are wells without water, clouds carried about by tempest, to whom the gloom of darkness is reserved forever. 
You might even call this a third characteristic of the false teachers. They despise authority. They're dominated by the flesh. And they don't deliver anything that's profitable. They are, well, to use Peter's phrase, wells without water. Now, what is a well supposed to do? A well is supposed to supply water that refreshes people. So if you're a well without water, you're of no value, like you are supposed to be. They are clouds without water. That's interesting. Uh, They are clouds carried away by the tempest. Now, what a cloud is supposed to do is rain. But if the cloud is carried away by a strong wind, then it does not satisfy people by bringing refreshing rain. Now, these are particularly vivid metaphors, figures of speech, for the Middle East, where there's desert. And the well was all the more important. And the rain was all the more important. And so Peter describes them as wells without water and clouds that pass by without dumping their rain. So he ends by saying, to whom is the gloom of darkness is reserved forever, which simply means they are going to be punished when all this is over. Now, earlier in the passage, he um, went into great detail about their punishment, their judgment. All right, how are we doing? Got it? Wow, what a discouraging message. <laughs> told to preach the whole counsel of God, so I had to take you through it, right? Uh, this is what you need to remember from this passage. False teachers, at least this crowd, despise authority, are dominated by fleshly desires, and are driven by covetousness, delivering nothing profitable to others, and are headed for darkness forever. So let me conclude by asking, what can we learn from them? I think that's an important question. Have you noticed the Bible doesn't hesitate to record the stories of bad examples? You know? Uh, I think the scripture is teaching us that you should learn from good examples and you should learn from bad examples. Hello? Bible's full of stories of bad examples, and we can learn from them. So if there's anything we can learn from these prophets or these teachers, I'm going to boil it down to this. Uh, Number one, we should not be rebellious. They were rebellious. That's what it all comes down to. After years of uh, counseling, my brother, who's a professional counselor in Dallas, said to me one day, you know, and all these people I counsel, the real problem is rebellion. So it's not limited to false teachers. All of us have a streak of that. One author says, God has established authority in this world, and when we resist authority, we resist him. It's taught in Romans 13. Parents are to have authority over their children. Employees and employers are to have a 
authority over their employees. As citizens, we Christians should pray for those in authority, show respect to them, and seek to glorify God in our behalf. As members of a local assembly, we should honor those who have spiritual rule over us and seek to encourage them in the ministry. And he lists verses for all of these things. And then he says, human government is, in one sense, God's gift to help maintain order in the world so that the church may minister the word and win people to Christ. He's just saying we're all under authority. And I'm suggesting we rebel against authority. And it starts at a very young age. Did you ever notice no parent ever taught a kid to say no? (laughs) They enter life with an innate ability to say no. And they do it at a very young age. Where did they get that? I didn't teach you that, the father says. I didn't give you a lesson in that, the mother says. But the kid says, no! What is that? It's rebellion. That's all it is. And it happens throughout life. So what we've had today is a graphic illustration of what it is to be rebellious, it can lead to all kinds of unthinkable sins. So if there's any lesson to learn, it's check, it's check the obedience before it starts expressing itself like their rebellion expressed itself. Check it at the heart level, not at the habit level. Because remember in the middle of this passage it says, and they could not stop. Once you go down that road and it becomes an entrenched habit, it's harder and harder to break. It can be broken by the grace of God. But it's harder and harder to break. So check it at the heart level, not the habit level. That's one lesson we can learn. There is a second. And that is They were wells without water, clouds that passed over without dumping refreshing rain. Don't be like a false teacher. Don't be like a false teacher in heart rebellion. Don't be like a false teacher in getting to the place where you cannot stop sinning without divine intervention. And don't be like a false teacher and that you're of no good to anybody. You're not refreshing. One author said, a true servant of God is humble and seeks to serve others. The true servant of God does not think about praise or pay because he serves God from a loving and obedient heart He honors God and the authority that God has established in the world. In short, the true servant of God patterns himself after Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Father, help us to spot false doctrine when we hear it and to denounce 
the conduct that comes from rebellion when we see it, and in the meantime, to have a humble heart and to serve others. Lord, help us to master ourselves so we can serve others and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.